Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music in a super fun way, hosted by me, Emily Reese, radio host, and sommelier Jill Mott. In today's episode, we are going to talk about popular groups of homies. This is part two of... Homie groups. Exactly. If you like the show, you can make a financial contribution, which we would greatly appreciate, to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. And there are tiers there. You can choose what level of patron content you would like, including merchandise. You'll also find a link to our merch there, which is great. And speaking of patrons, thanks to all y'all. We couldn't do this without you. We're still in a pandemic. No. Do you want some, Emily? <laughs> I do. <laughs> to scores and pours. Two scores and pours. Look at this color. This is dark and cloudy, and I love it. Is it dark? Like, look at it against your notebook. Oh, I guess it's kind of um, brick. Yeah. yeah. When you look at it against the soundproof black coating in the wall, <laughs> it's gonna look dark. No, that's a that's a, a trick of the trade to look at it to look at wine with like white paper or white something below you so that you can tell an accurate color. Yeah. I don't know. You can tell it's a little bit got a just a touch of age. There's a little bit of like a brickish tone to it, but it's like very plummy in color, right? Mm-hmm. Not yeah. purple, but like yeah. that garnet ruby plum, ruby right. plum. Yeah. I just love that we're starting off with drink. We didn't even say hello. No, we'll to get each there. Other. Yeah. We'll get there. Gamay for some Emily Reese. I love me some Gamay. Mm. Wines have a dry finish. So I think that's the stupidest thing that people say because we don't have sugar sensors in the back of our tongue. Yeah. That said, I mean, technically we do, but not in a concentrated way. And yeah. But this has a dry finish. <laughs> like it's really, it's got a tannic. Yeah. And kind of bitter pip. Bitter, yeah, a little bitter and warm. It's one that warms my throat on the way down. Yeah. It's medicinal, but not in a bad way. So it's Gamay. It is. And I will talk about the producer in a hot second. This is, I think, whenever I taste his wines, to me, that's like the, it's Jean-Paul Tivigny is when it tastes a little bit medicinal because the other four producers that we have talked about and will talk about don't have that. They're all very different. Yeah. Hi, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. <laughs> How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. You're that, better now that your throat is warm. My throat is warm with some Gamay, which what else could I possibly want? I don't know. You're healthier. Yeah. I mean, you have an- more antioxidants in your gullet, belly, all the things. Yeah. More than you had 20 seconds ago. So I should keep drinking. Yes, probably. Okay. So this is part two. Yes. A continuation, which is Gr- kind of... Appropriate. Yes. Today, I'd like to continue the conversation about one of my favorite groups of homies, because it's we're talking about famous groups in classical music and wine. Yep. And in the previous episode, part one, I talked about the Gang of Four and who they mentored with. 
or I guess who was their inspiration, I'll say, because not all of them mentored with Jules Chauvet, but the gang of four from Beaujolais, from the heart of Morgon, which is in the kind of the center of crew Beaujolais, which is very south in Burgundy and kind of central eastern France. And so I'm going to continue that conversation today by recapping, but then, of course, talking about the last two. Yeah, I mean, I uh, talked last week and I will talk again this week about the mighty handful or the five. They have uh, varying uh, nicknames along those lines, and they're from Russia. The mighty handful. Yeah, imagine those five in a bar. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Mazorsky would drink anybody under the table so, <laughs> yep. uh, for his brief life. That was uh, his second, maybe third hobby past his career and his composition career. Mazorsky was a drinker. And so we'll talk about Mazorsky for just a half a minute. We'll also talk about Alexander Borodin down the road. Uh, today, we're really going to devote our time to Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, um, probably the, the most successful, the most learned of the five and uh, probably the most famous music of the five, and just an absolute pleasure. One of my favorite composers, hands down, when it comes to orchestral music, and uh, we'll listen to some really great stuff today. My part of the conversation of the esteemed and highly regarded Gang of Four is going to be pretty easy to start from where we left off. I mean, it all began with Jules Chauvet, who we mentioned, uh, the mentor of... We talked about Marcel Lapierre in our previous episode, who sort of started the Gang of Four without trying, right? It was his wines that inspired a lot of, or I should say the other three winemakers to kind of band with him. But it all started with Marcel Lapierre's being inspired by Jules Chauvet's work. And we talked about him in the previous episode, where Jules Chauvet was an extremely gifted taster, he was a winemaker, a viticulturist, a researcher, a chemist. Um, and so he came from all of these aspects from a scientific background. You know, wine wasn't poetry to him. Wine was, yes, it was beautiful, but he was searching for the reasons why they were beautiful and expressive of terroir. And so uh, Jules being born in Jules, like I know him, you know, not <laughs> Monsieur Chauvet. He's, he's Jules. Born north of Macon, so we're in, in Burgundy area, eastern central France. And we talked about he, how he was the mentor of the gang of four specifically. And again, I'll just recap for those of you who are jumping right into part two. Good quality fruit has to start with great quality fruit, has to be hand harvested and harvested late as opposed to very prominent in Beaujolais Nouveau production, which used to be and still is sort of the calling card of Beaujolais, was which was early, which was harvesting earlier. So you have hardly any sugars for the yeast to ferment, super high acid. And then you would heat them up. You would add packeted yeast, all that's just all this gross manipulation. <laughs> Chaptalize, meaning you would add sugar to it to give some sort of some sugar source for the yeast. And so then you'd have higher alcohol, native yeast to ferment cool carbonic maceration, so whole cluster intracellular fermentation. But he specifically says for gamay on granite soils, he said nowhere else should people be doing cool carbonic maceration and then not filtering. He did say low sulfur, um, and he did say, you know, sulfur not to interrupt the fermentation process, so you're not adding it during the point where fruit and juice are turning into wine or wine is going from 
fermentation, alcoholic fermentation to malolactic fermentation, you shouldn't be adding it at that time. Pretty much only at bottling was what Jules Chauvet was a proponent of, which is, I think, sometimes when we talk about natural wine, there are a lot of advocates that are like, listen, it's no sulfur the highway. And the beginnings of a lot of this, even when people weren't wearing the sweatshirts and the t-shirts and the, all the cool banners of natural wine, people were adding, Jules Chauvet was adding a little bit of sulfur. It's better to have a drinkable wine than no flawed, wine at all. Right? Yeah. Because that's what it does, right? If you add it at the end, it takes care of some of those flaws that might make, make it taste bad. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So this is basically extremely in contrast to the 1950s and 1960s, the conglomerate that is and was synthetic fertilizers, mono agriculture companies coming in and monopolizing a, a lot of that industry. So he was issuing those practices as well. Mm-hmm. I'll touch on the two latter gentlemen that are that make up the gang of four, but let's let's dive into some music. Let's music. So uh, also a little recap. Last week I talked about Mili Balakirev who was the leader of this group of five Russian musicians. Basically what happened is Mili Balakirev put together a concert that had music in it that was considered Russian. It was based on Russian themes and it was, I wouldn't say propaganda, but just it was very nationalistic. And out of that concert then, uh, someone in the press named these five composers as the, the mighty handful. So Mili Balakirev being the leader. Uh, one of the composers that had music on that concert was Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Rimsky-Korsakov has, I don't know, I just, I find his kind of story particularly charming, if only because he was really obsessed and in love with the sea and the ocean, and he had never even seen it when he was young. But he still, when he was like 12 years old, went to military school and wanted to become a naval officer, and that's what he did. And he was even sailing around in his early 20s and composing in his off time and things like that. But he had a very long naval career and then stayed in the military for for years after that. So that was always a really big part of his life, even when he was teaching at conservatory. Um, So Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov learned piano at the age of six, and he started composing when he was about 10 years old. But as I mentioned, this military aspect was really prominent. His, he came from a line of military in, in the family, and I mean, I think even now that that's true. I think there are just military families, and Rimsky-Korsakov's family was that as well. He had a much older brother who was in the Navy and he was kind of like an explorer with the Navy. And he was just so, Nikolai was just really um, kind of taken with that and and really admired his, his older brother for, for that career. And so that's where Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov initially went to school, was the Naval Academy. And he took some music lessons on the side here and there and tried to keep up with his composing. He met Mili Balakirev at this time when he was like 17 or 18 years old in 1861. Um, I will give you birth and death dates. That's one of the things I kind of suck at sometimes, and I apologize. But Rimsky-Korsakov was born in 1844 and died in 1908. Mili Balakirev was born in 1837 
and died just a couple years after Rimsky-Korsakoff. So similarly aged. Um, and so Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakoff, after he graduated, went on a voyage, like a year and a half or two-year voyage in, in the Navy. And he went to places like Niagara Falls, New York. This is, by the way, if you think of America in 1862, what crosses your mind? The movie Newsies that took place 30 years later. <laughs> but go ahead. Also the Civil War. So Yes, yes. Okay, I mean, you just asked me off the cuff. That's I know. the first thing that came to mind. I head. know. <laughs> That's good, though. So Rimsky-Korsakoff was kind of kicking it in America for a half a minute during the height of the Civil War, really. They were in New York. They were in D.C., um, so it was... Probably drinking some Madeira, hopefully, <laughs> if they knew the right people. Exactly. While this is going on, as I mentioned, he's occasionally sending things back to Mili Balakirev. Balakirev is looking them over, making suggestions, and on and on. So uh, when he gets back from the his adventures in the military, eventually he ends up with a teaching post at St. Petersburg Conservatory at a very young age, he was in his mid twenties, which wow. is huge. And was that conservatory pretty well, well to do? Whether it be, you know, did they have? Were they well funded? Were they well known? Like, what's what's the yeah. story? The Saint Petersburg Conservatory is like is a huge part of the history of Russian music. I mean, okay. that's where Tchaikovsky was, okay. for instance. So this is a very um, traditional music school. They're learning. Counterpoint. They're learning how Bach wrote music. They're learning how people before Bach wrote music. They're learning fugues. They're learning four-part voice writing, things like that, the students are. All things that Rimsky-Korsakov never really formally studied. So let's listen to some music quickly, because I feel like I'm talking too much, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about him and why that was kind of special. So, that sounds great. All right. This is from an opera of his. This is an orchestral suite from an opera. The opera is like three hours long. The suite is only like 15 or 20 minutes long or something. Is this the opera that every time you and I have either texted or talked this week about pre prepping for this episode or, you know, yeah. hey, how you doing today? Are you holding holding up uh, during this pandemic? And you're like, I'm listening to this opera by Rimsky Korsakoff. <laughs> is this the one? Yeah. I mean, this okay. is a really beautiful opera by Rimsky Korsakoff. And it's based on two different Russian legends. Uh, again, so huge nationalism, right? We're trying very hard to create a Russian sound and, and explore our Russian roots, not necessarily even musically, but maybe in terms of story and myth and legend. So this is called The Legend of the Invisible City of Katej and the Maiden Fevronia. So this is how it starts off, with a beautiful kind of opening forest scene in the Russian wilderness. I'm going to next name my next car Fevronia. So is Katej sort of like like our version of the Atlantis? Like obviously it's a fictional city. Do we know like what do people search for it? Is it does it have a sp supposed location? Katej, mythical city right in the middle of uh, Russia apparently. Okay. 
And the legend has it that the uh, Tartars came to invade the city and it was invisible and they couldn't find it. It's very beautiful. I mean, it does have this, like, I I hate to say it because it sounds very, like, I think, elementary, the way that I come about this, but it does sound very, does sound Russian. Yeah. Again, you know, like, if that was their goal. Yes, there are harmonic reasons that you say that and melodic reasons too. There's um, just unique ways that uh, the Russians and the gang of five, gang of five, like they're wine people, uh, the mighty handful uh, practiced harmony. Okay, so I don't want to, like, mix politics with <laughs> scores and pours, but I kind of do, I guess. Like, it's this part doesn't, but when it, we get those certain tones, those certain combinations of sounds, of notes, it sounds very, like, Stalin-esque. Yeah. Communist. So, I mean, and I don't mean that to sound, like, in, in necessarily as a negative in those regards, but, like, yeah. powerful. Well, it so, should. I mean, that that was the propaganda. Propaganda made that the, that way, mm-hmm. right? It, propaganda, even on the U.S. side, you know, um, putting music underneath commercials that denounced Russians. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, that's, that's how that seeps out into just becoming, like, the nomenclature of what Russian music sounds like is because... It was used through all the wars. It, it, I mean, this is, yeah, this is, it sounds Russian. It because, didn't at the time. Okay. You know, I mean, it it did, but it also, they, they created that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a this whole suite, this whole orchestral suite. I absolutely adore it, and and it's one of just dozens of examples of uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's expertise at what we call orchestration, which is what instruments are playing at what time, who's playing, what instrument is playing the melody, what instrument's playing the harmony, how are the instruments blended, how are the percussionists, what instruments are creating color. Can you show us an example of creating color? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we heard it, especially right there toward the end of that movement where you've got a clarinet kind of mimicking a bird and we're going to hear just kind of like a piccolo up there mimicking a bird. So we're, we're listening to the sounds of a forest and he's, he's evoking that with his colorful instrumentation. 
Yeah, I'm like, I'm walking through a forest and then I'm frightened. Yeah, there's <laughs> definitely like, it's it's not only painting color in a picture, but it's like making you feel, yes. you know, which is, I think, super amazing and powerful. Yes, and that's something that he gets a lot of credit for is his ability to set a time and a place with his music. And that was why he got hired at St. Petersburg Conservatory. He got hired because he was a brilliant colorist in that way. He didn't know... He didn't have a grasp on four-part writing or uh, what we call counterpoint, the music of Bach and Rameau and Vivaldi and Handel. He didn't really have a good understanding of that. And he was very self-conscious about that after he took that job. And so he took a couple of years and didn't write a single note, spent all his free time studying um, uh, Baroque-era counterpoint, and each day would practice his four-part writing. And when he completed his kind of two-ish years of intense self-study, he then went back and revised like all his music and fixed all this stuff that he wanted to fix. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's really incredible. And then and he when, became when did that happen? Like when he, was he doing all of that studying and not writing a note? And then all of a sudden he came back and re you know, fixed all pretty much right after he started. He started that job in 1871 at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, and I think it was either that year or the year after that he just started, like, really intensely learning theory and counterpoint because all his colleagues at the St. Petersburg Conservatory knew that stuff, and so he really felt like he needed to know that. And, and I mean, I don't know if you'll recall, but last week when we talked about Mili Balakirev, Balakirev didn't know any of that stuff either and felt very strongly that it was not the best way to learn how to write music. And, you know, a lot of people say that he said those things because he didn't know it and therefore wanted to make himself feel better. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't need to know all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that was just a kind of an interesting point of contention, as it were, in The Five, because, you know, Rimsky-Korsakov was like, well, this is going to make me a way better composer if I know how to do all these things. And it's so funny because it is really dogmatic, isn't it? It's like when it becomes like with the natural wine movement, no sulfur. Yeah. Yes, sulfur. 25 parts is okay. No, it's not. 30 yeah. parts is okay. You know, it's so it's yeah. It's valid. All yeah. arguments are valid, but it's kind of stupid. Before we get into Jean-Paul Thévenet, one person that we did not talk about last week when when we speak about the mentor that is Georges Chauvet, most folks don't really take note of Jacques Nieport, who is basically Jules Chauvet's sidekick slash colleague of sorts. And he liked cool carbonic maceration, like Jules Chauvet, but Jacques Nieport loved it for Grenache, loved it for other grapes on other terroirs, which now you would have natural wine makers be like, they would be all about that because they could do carbonic macerated Sauvignon flippin' Blanc from the <laughs> Loire Valley. Like, that's just crazy, right? White mm. wines. But it can be really fun and really delicious. I guess Jacques Newport would probably say, like, it can make a fun wine, but it can't make a terroir-driven wine. Oh, interesting. Carbonic can't? Yeah, cool carbonic maceration, whereas Jacques Newport said, yes, it can, and by the way, don't add any sulfur. (laughs) 
Oh, wow. So, so now we have, when people kind of talk about the Gang of Four being like this, and Jules Chauvet sort of starting the natural wine movement without trying to start it, did they? Or was it, we kind of don't talk about Jacques Nieport, and he, he was a really kind of, he was a really big part of that too. Jules Chauvet's wines and his practices were became very well known, as I mentioned last week. And we have Marcel Lapierre, who started to mentor with Jules. And, and then we have Guy Breton shortly thereafter. Today, we're going to talk about two others, starting with Jean-Paul Thévenet, which is how we pre-started this episode, <laughs> cracking the cork on that wine. He was probably, he is probably the quietest of and lowest profile of the current gang of four, also located in Morgon, as they all are. So one of the crews or subregions within Beaujolais in the northern part of Beaujolais. And the family domain has existed since the late 1800s, but he has obviously since taken charge of the family domain. And since 2008, it's been completely organic and biodynamically farmed, which is nice. really not too common in in France, but especially in Beaujolais. He's got a mere five hectares with his son Charlie, who Charlie makes an incredible terroir reflective wine in the region of Renier. <laughs> nice. Looks like Regnier, but it's pronounced Renier. And so they have their vines. They're all planted to, you know, common theme, decomposed granite. So very compact um, with a lot of different textures in that soil. And of these five hectares, we have only two plots. 45-year-old vines on one plot and about 100 plus 110-year-old vines in another plot. And that's all he's working with. What's interesting is he prefers a longer fermentation with the whole cluster fermentation. So when we think of Guy Breton that we tasted last week, it wasn't as intense. It was a little bit more kind of glue-gluey um, yeah. than the Lapierre because Guy... Breton, or Petit Max, as they call him, right? Guy Breton likes things a little bit more lifted and a little bit more kind of fun, but serious. Jean-Paul Thévenet likes them long, long maceration, all in concrete, so very fresh. We're not getting a ton of oak influence, except for the fact that then they're aged in Burgundian oak barrels for six to eight months, only six to eight months. So there's hardly, you're not smelling hardly any oak here. And this guy makes only 2,000 cases of wine per annum, which is next to nothing when we think of Beaujolais at large. Should I refresh yeah, your last little do. bit? Please do, please do. I'm just, I'm in love with this wine. So now that you know what this is, and you know who it is. What do you think about it? And compared, if you if you're remembering, you know, Marcel Lapierre was like a little bit lighter on the palate than the Guy Breton, right? But it had a little bit more. I want to say like serious aromatics than the Guy Breton was a little bit more lifted, a little bit more kind of juicy. And then we have Jean Paul Thévenet. How do you feel like this compares to the two? This wine is also juicy but it's not um it's it's not quite the same kind of juicy it's more like dried fruit juicy than it is ripe fruit juicy great call yeah great call and and so that also like um and i i hate to use this word because i don't want it to sound negative i don't mean it negative but the bitterness that you get out of dried fruit compared to fresh fruit too. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. that's a great call and 
just to refresh everybody's memory, because I'm sure you're probably not listening to two and a half hours of scores and pours in the bathtub or something back to back. The LaPierre was a 2019 Morgon. The Guy Breton was a 2015 Morgon. And this is a 2016 Morgon. Okay. Um, he calls this, this, he makes one wine. This is the only wine he makes. This is called Vie Vine, which means old vine, just like the Guy Breton, because 45-year-old vines in this area are considered old. And then you add the fact that there's some 100-plus-year-old vine juice in here, Neat. which adds a bit of concentration. When I compare it to the previous two, I get just like this... It's sort of like the best of all of those worlds. It's like serious. It's somewhat lifted, but it's also very concentrated. And I think if this were done with sta- in stainless steel, I think it would be probably really fun. Obviously, it's a great winemaker, but it would almost be like too much. Like the fact that it's fermented whole cluster, you know, there's carbonic maceration transpiring, but it's breathing in concrete, you know, and then he transfers it. Once it turn, has turned into wine, he's transferred it into old Burgundian oak barrels and it's had time, it's breathing in those oak barrels, right? And all the while yeah. there's this oxygen exchange because if not, it'd just be really freaking concentrated. Yeah. Um, I always think of this wine too as being like, as I said, medicinal. There's like all four of them are extremely different, and so it's such a joy to be able to to taste them back to back like we've done. Oh, it's been a treat, and I can't wait to taste the next one. Right. Well, let's listen to some more music first. That sounds great. So let's listen to some more Rimsky-Korsakoff. This is more of this suite. That's the music we'll hear from him today. It comes from this suite from this opera of his, The Invisible City of Kitej and the, the Maiden Fevronia. So we're going to jump ahead to the third movement. We're going to hear uh, a lot of really great brass. And this is a battle, right? So um, this is one of the things, this is kind of, uh, oh God, it can get so tricky. I was going to say this is a dead giveaway that it's later than the Baroque era and later than the classical era. But there are caveats to that that I I don't want to confuse you. But You mean because of the brass usage? Because of the way the brass is written. Also because there's tuba quite robust tuba and lots of trombone as well, which isn't too common pre-romantic era, right? So uh, let's listen to a little bit of this at the beginning, and then I'll, I'll speed up toward that. Well, I won't speed it up. I'll fast forward to uh, some really brassy stuff. So same opera, different movement. A little bassoon for some Jill Mott. Thank you. Rimsky Korskoff. Love you a long time. <laughs> People are galloping. Doesn't it sound that way? Or our yes. horses are galloping. Yep. So the Tartars are coming to invade Katej, and Fevronia is just really praying to make the city of Katej disappear. She's been captured by the Tartars. So let's just go ahead and fast forward to the, a really brassy part. Yeah, I'm getting nervous. Listen, there's just too much war in the world anyway. Hear that tuba down there? Yeah, so we're like 2.30, right? Somewhere in there? Yep, right around two and a half minutes into the third movement. Mm -hmm. 
that's symbols. Yep. I wonder if people are getting hit there in the opera, like. Oh yeah, yeah. Those are sword strikes and. Yeah. Sad. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's some beautifully intense brass writing. This melody, too. Bass clarinet. Yep, that was bass clarinet. I mean, colorful. This colorful, oh, yes. descriptive so, music. Yeah, so yep. moody, but in in the a way that is not abstract. Yeah, it's all with with. It seems extremely obviously. Composition is in t- intentional, but yeah. this is like with a you know the motive of like telling the story that seems to make perfect sense. Yes. <laughs> good work, RK. Such good work. And uh, we're not listening to his most famous music. This is considered one of his best operas, if not his best opera. But his most famous music would be probably Flight of the Bumblebee, which sounds like this. And I would say his next most famous piece is a just monstrously wonderful orchestral piece called Scheherazade. And we will absolutely do an episode on Scheherazade someday. It's a long piece. It's like 45 minutes, 50 minutes, something like that. Four movements, basically like a violin feature, but not a concerto per se, but there's a lot of beautiful solo violin in it. And it's just a wonderful orchestral version telling, as it were, of the uh, 1001 Arabian Nights. So it's absolutely wonderful piece of music. And I'll just play you a little snippet of that right now so you can hear what Scheherazade sounds like. And then we'll, before we move on to someone else, we'll hear a little bit more from this other opera. But this is what Scheherazade starts like. So let's have some more uh, Gamay, if we could. What's cool about Emily and I tasting these wines back-to-back is meaning the Jean-Paul Tivenet with the Jean Foyard and then last week tasting Marcel Lapierre's wines, or I should say his son Mathieu and daughter Camille's Morgon alongside the Guy Breton Morgon. They've all been the flagship wines, meaning they don't make a lot of wine anyway, but if they do make three or four or five wines to showcase a different region or a little hillside or blah, blah, 
were tasting all their Morgones. Here we are as well, but this is a, it's not only a sub-region of Beaujolais, Morgone, of course, but this is a Ludi Ooh. as well, which is super fun. What does that mean? Um, which means a named place, a popular named place. Okay. So if you remember last week when we tasted Guy Breton's wine, most of that fruit was coming from a high altitude, which is another reason why it had such shredding, beautiful acidity, called Lucharme. And if you look at a, a wine map of Beaujolais and you type in Lucharme, like it's listed, like you'll see where it is. It's far west in the region. And this is Jean Foyard's eponym, his 2018, that all comes from the Lucharme site, which is dope. You know, nobody ever gets to drink this because all of his wines usually sell out, right? We get it in Minneapolis because not a lot of people know what Jean Foyard is. So it trickle, it sells, but it trickles. Yeah. In New York, the stuff just isn't around. Like wow. it, it is released and it's gone. So Jean Foyard, before we sip it, I'll just say I'm not one to pick favorites. I'm a Libra. I will always want one thing and another thing. When I go to a wine bar, I'm the I'm the most annoying guest because people will be like, oh, so what can I bring you to drink? Well, you know, you want a glass? You want a bottle? I'll be like, can I have 17 half glasses? <laughs> and I'm happy to pay for full glasses, but I want all the half glasses and I want all the half. Can I just pay for a quarter of a glass now? Because I've had a half, I don't want a quarter of a glass of my favorite. They're going to be like, shut up. <laughs> Like I would, I know me, and I'd be like, "Oh fuck, this person!" Like that, that I just know <laughs> when I. But out of the four, if someone is going to gift me a bottle, I'm probably going to elect John Foyard's wines. Wow. Not every time, but almost every time. Okay, they are. I'm going to just rush to the bottom of my notes. La Revue du France says this about Jean Foyard's wines: of all the disciples of Jules Chauvet. Jean Foyard is the most likely to succeed in the practice of using very little sulfur, without which is kind of incorrect, as we talked about with the whole Neoport thing, but whatever. Without having his wines act capriciously at the slightest change in atmospheric pressure, his wines possess magnificent body and give aromas of a unique purity and grace. And I'm done. So why Jean Foyard? I think it's it ends up you have... The best of all of the worlds of the Gang of Four, the ethereal quality of Marcel Lapierre, the concentrated notion of Jean-Paul Thévenet, and the lifted yet concentrated quality of Guy Breton, all in one. And they're very age-worthy wines. A lot of these wines made by these winemakers are age-worthy. I've had decades old of all of these winemakers, and they're awesome, but... You know, I know you haven't, and I brought over for you to taste one time the 2011, remember, the Jean Foyard? Yes. And you were like, what <laughs> is this? And I could tell you'd never had anything like it, but you were as stoked as if you had. Yeah. And it was just so deep, but it as if it were born yesterday. Like, it had so much acidity, so much room to grow. And that was a 2011. It was a flipping 10-year-old gamay, and it was delicious, right? And that's just like the tip of the iceberg with Jean Foyard. So what we're going to taste today is we're going to taste his Morgon, but his eponym, which is, it's a 2018. And all the wines we've tasted from the winemakers of the Gang of Four thus far have been their flagship wines, their Morgon. This is a a little bit of a departure from that because it is a Morgon, but it is a Ludi, which means a said 
a, a specific place. Very like super hyper local specific. Hyper local. Right? Yeah. So now not only are we in Beaujolais in the subregion slash crew that is Morgon, now we're at a hillside that's very important. <laughs> and Le Charme is not to be confused with Cote de Pie, which is also an extremely famous hillside in Morgon that <laughs> is Jean Foyard's flagship wine, is his Cote de Pie. Okay. But what makes Le Charme different, Le Charme is, Guy Breton also has a lot of his Morgon, comes from Le Charme. Le Charme. Okay. But Le Charme is, so it's a very high altitude site for the area. But his Morgon, Jean Foyard's Morgon, is usually about 10 to 90-year-old vines. So you get youthfulness, you get, you know, kind of that jovial light, but you also get concentration. Mm-hmm. And eight hectares about of fruit. Le Charme is only 1.5 hectares, and it's hovers right around 50-year-old vines. Wow. So you're getting like hyper-specificity in terms of being able to say this tastes like this thing. Sure. And just a quick tidbit about Jean Foyard's past, he doesn't have a long history like a lot of the other people in the area in terms of having a family domain that goes back to the 1800s or whatever. Okay. So this was founded in, in 1980. He was organic from the get-go. But what makes his wines really interesting is... He's been, we'll say, I'll say natural because he's using extremely low amounts of sulfur since a mere five years later, so 1985. He noticed that his wines were honest, transparent, along like with Marcel Lapierre's, but he, he noticed that like that lack of sulfur or just the smidge of sulfur would be for him the route to terroir. And when you taste his wines... They're just so ridiculous. <laughs> they're always, they do taste like there's a venosity to them that I do feel like the other ones don't have. And by venosity, I mean like a whiny quality. Okay. Like when, you know, you can tell like a wine is a little off kilter, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think he's he's harnessed like the best of natural wine and the best of terroir classic you know it's Gamay. We're not just like carbonic macerating the shit out of things yeah. and aging it in amphora from Georgia because we can. This is like true, masterful Gamay. He makes about two to 3,000 cases total a year. And just to speak to before we smell it, the fermentation, whole cluster, again, he loves the three to four week. So he's very... You know, if you think of LaPierre that likes 10 days to three weeks, hmm. he's a little bit more up there with the Jean-Paul Tévenet. Longer maceration slash longer whole cluster fermentations, cooler. And then he's aging it for about the same amount of time as Tévenet. So the difference here is sight. Wow. And yeah, a little bit different age in vine, but the lack of sulfur too. <laughs> so. Well, cheers to that. Okay, so tell me what you think of this guy. Shut up. I know. <laughs> wow. It doesn't smell as juicy as it tastes. You know what I mean? I, I would have expected it to be a little more uh, fragrant of a kind of hit me in the face because mm-hmm. that's what it does when you taste it. It's so fruity and good. I know. It's so pure, you know? Like when I yeah. smell this, I'm like, this is what grapes are capable of. And I think that, you know, the difference between Jean-Paul Tévenet, I couldn't imagine someone not liking that wine. Like, it's just, it's popular for people that would like natural wine or not. Whereas this wine is like, people would probably slug it and they wouldn't realize how 
good it really is. Easily. I mean, they're all good because I, I now I feel like I'm kind of picking favorites and I don't mean to, but I just think that there's a level of complexity here mm-hmm. that is from a, a lack of sulfur that the others are low-ish sulfur too, but sure. there's like a depth. I mean, look at the colors darker. Yeah. And granted, yeah. it's a little bit newer than the 2016 by a couple years, but it's like more of just slightly more purple in yes. nature. Yes, and long after a uh, very long very finish. Long finish. Yeah. yeah, true mm-hmm. that. And the nose, I love how there's this like equal parts. They're not even equal parts. There's like eighty percent grape or ninety and ten percent old oak. Like they've coalesced really well. Yes. All right. Let's let's music before I drink my whole half glass in twenty seconds. <laughs> mm. So we'll just listen to a little more of the. Uh, just skill that Rimsky Korsakov had with just wringing every last color out of an orchestra he possibly could for the time. One of the things that Rimsky Korsakov did, because he was so praised around the world for his, you know, colorful music, he ended up writing a book about orchestration. And it's pretty much standard reading for uh, people who learn composition. There are a handful of books about instrumentation and orchestration, and Rimsky-Korsakov's is one of them. And he it's not a very long book, uh, just maybe 150 pages or something like that. And he includes examples in music, uh, from his music. And he talks about things like, you know, when you're writing for this instrument and you want more volume, you should double it with this instrument and blend these oh, two instruments together cool. for this kind of color and never use the French horn when you're using this instrument or, you know, things along those lines, just cool. kind of laying it out and saying, this is really how you can get the best sound out of an orchestra. So it's really fun to just kind of flip through and be like, oh, that's what he thought about trumpets or whatever. Uh, he talks about size of orchestra, how many violins you should have, and, and depending on the size of the orchestra, if it's a small orchestra, you should have this many violins. If it's a large orchestra, this is how many you have, and then this is how many trumpets you can have in that size, size of an orchestra. So he just made it easy wow, for everybody. Cool. you know? Super cool. Uh, well, other than just writing the actual music, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, here's the final movement of this suite that he made from his uh, opera, the legend of the invisible city of Katej and the maiden Fevronia. Disney movie or something. Oh, yeah. Or a Pixar film or whatever. Yeah. Nice little oboe, like we heard in the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
This one kicks it up a notch with the brass too, so we'll listen to the end. Okay. hear all the bells. Just beautiful. Just listen to the tuba. Okay, so I'd love to ask. I hear that amazing ending that's like leaded with emotion and what looks like forte or fortissimo, like very kind of loud on many of the instruments parts. And I hear the tuba coming in and it's like beautiful and kind of almost carries the whole orchestra. But it in in like very uh, a way that because I'm a very amateur musician, meaning I can play like two songs on the bass guitar. And maybe like some made up weird shit on the hammer dulcimer. I hear the tuba, and to me, I know it's hard to play the tuba, but it sounds like kind of simple versus like when you hear a, a 7,000 notes from a violinist. Like, so who has the easy? Is it like, is that that? Because I think me just talking through it seems like you one would think, oh, well, that tuba player's got the easy end of the stick, but that's probably not the case, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like comparing you know, maybe not even a one wine to a different color of wine. It's maybe like comparing wine to like brandy or... Or meat. Or meat. Okay. Something completely different that has, it's just its own world with its own challenges and its own difficulties. Because like, if you think about, for instance, a, a sunny side up egg, seems like the easiest fucking thing in the world, but they're really hard to do right. Mm-hmm. And tuba is that. Tuba is a sunny side up egg. Because if you think about it, first of all, think about like a big giant PVC pipe that's like three inches wide and just blow into that. And then take like a half inch wide PVC pipe and blow into that. Which one's going to be less resistance? Mm-hmm. Would be the bigger one. Mm-hmm. So tubas have a giant mouthpiece and they have to push through so much air. It's insane. Playing tuba is tremendously difficult and it's hard to sustain notes on a tuba Mm. and it's hard to play quietly on a tuba and it's hard to play cleanly on a tuba because the valves are so huge for one thing. Um, So it has its own challenges that not least of which is its size, which I think turns a lot of people off to tuba. So the amount of virtuosic, amazing tuba players in the world is minuscule compared to the amount of virtuosic violinists in the world. Uh, Some of those reasons are as follows. Violins are cheaper than tubas, much cheaper. Beginner violins. Obviously, I'm not talking about some $40,000. Yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about a $1.2 million Stradivarius or anything. I'm just saying that you can take a four-year-old and give them a violin that's a half-size violin. So from the time they're four, they can be learning very dexterous fingerings and very difficult, fast passages. And a tuba player can't do that. Oh, there are true, smaller yeah. tubas, 
but you're not going to get to a full-size tuba until you're in high school probably. Yeah. So, you know, there are just different stages of learning that happen on those instruments. and. Well, and then um, I imagine you and I have talked about the tuba before when we've talked about jazz, and you're like, the tuba's like 40 pounds yeah. or something. So I imagine <laughs> when you're like thinking of the instrument you want to play, and granted there are some people that are attached to X or Y or Z instrument from the time that they just start hearing music, that's yeah. cool. But like... I don't know. That's one thing that would stray me from playing the tuba or like the French horn or something mm-hmm. is like or the bass. Yeah, or the bass. Like yeah, the big, great example. Yes, French yep. horn, not so much. Yeah, like big case, heavy instrument, mm-hmm. lugging Harp. around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there are a lot of reasons, and and when an instrumentalist goes to audition for an orchestra, for instance, the music that they're going to be required to play in that audition is going to be pretty much the hardest music possible for that, you know, so they'll take a little excerpt from, you know, a, a Rimsky-Korsakov piece or something that the tuba player has to play. And it'll be like one of the hardest, it'll be just something that everyone knows. This is one of the hardest, most famous tuba excerpts. Okay. That's what they're going to be playing on. They're not going to play these, the end of this Rimsky-Korsakov piece that, where they're just playing some whole notes here and there or something along those lines. So audition material is pretty complex. Emily Reese. Way to come in on behalf of the tuba players, but also <laughs> without shatting on the violinists. Yeah. Like, I love it. I love it. Because I think that people don't hear music the same way. People don't have your background where they kind of grew up with classical and, and you know, and then mm-hmm. high school, college level classical music, et cetera. Tidbits like that are really mm-hmm. interesting to point out for people that could hear the tuba and, or the like a timpani and be like, oh, it's just a timpani. Well, yeah. that's, there's a lot of skill. And then, then there's just all the other things that come along with it. Yep. I mean, every instrument has its own, you know, mountains to climb in terms of difficulties and idiosyncrasies. And you know, it doesn't have mountains to climb. This putting this glass to my face. I know. Let's do it, <laughs> and then let's hear some uh, other um, Russian composers super fast before we say goodbye. This wine is delicious. We've poured the Jean Paul Tévenet alongside the Foyard to be able to. Taste them, see them. What do you think of the color? Just looking at them back to back. The foyard is much darker and more purple, and the Tévenet is, you know, brickier, a little bit brickier, and cl- a little um, clearer, maybe paler. Paler, yeah, great descriptor. Not as saturated in its hue. You can also kind of smell the age on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why what that is, but Yeah, and it that's very classic Tivenet. Like it kind of smells like it's maybe a year or two older than it is, but it also just that medicinal quality again really comes to the fore with his wines. The Foyard is just like a dream. It's like drinking a dream. And I like the Tivenet more with with a little aeration. Mm. You know? Now because it's sat out for a minute. Yep, I do. I like I think it expresses itself a little more. It it loses just a touch of that and I think in in the right way. Just a little bit of that compactness, that sort of like, you know, when you've hung out with someone enough times and they kind of let down their guard, it starts to loosen up a little bit in, mm-hmm. in the right way for me. I definitely taste grape skins on the Tevenet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that foyard is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm looking at Emily and shaking my head. Know, she just has a smile on her face. It's so true. Uh, well, with that smile, yeah. can you render me a smile by playing some Mazorksky? Sure. Let's just listen to a little bit of Mazorsky. Um I like this guy. I don't know why. I just really like him. I think his music is beautiful. It is. I, you know, maybe he should have laid off the bottle a little bit. Maybe yeah. we all should. Well, but I mean, you know, 
I know he was intense in that department for sure. He was intense. He and Rimsky Korsakov were roommates for a little bit, which is super cute. And they shared, so they shared a little flat. They shared a piano, and so they had like a little schedule for who know, got to use the that. piano no. when. I love that. <laughs> I know, and it worked out really well, I guess. Um, Mazorsky, just, I mean, really kind of sad how much alcohol he drank. It really definitely uh, shortened his life and impacted his work. And when he died, people like Rimsky-Korsakov finished his music for him, which is a little controversial depending on how much Rimsky-Korsakov actually changed. Um, But yeah, let's listen to uh, some music from an opera Mazorsky wrote called Boris Gudinov. No, that's going to be the name of my next kitty. opera that uh, Mazorsky actually finished, but this is an aria called So the Gnat Was Chopping Some Firewood. He seemed like a character, Mazorsky. Yeah, I mean, just look at pictures of the, of the guy. <laughs> <laughs> he always looks like he's just rolled out of bed after about a bottle and a half of vodka. Yeah. <laughs> Poor dude. Mazorsky's most famous piece is Night on Bald Mountain which I am sure you would recognize. So let's listen to A Little Night on Bald Mountain by Mazorsky. This is how Modest feels when he wakes up and the liquor cabinet's empty. (laughs) The tears falling down his face. Why? Why? (laughs) These are the delirium tremens right here. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really great piece, again, with beautiful brass writing in it. The only other remaining member that we really didn't talk about was Alexander Borodin. Borodin, like Mazorsky, like Rimsky-Korsakov, like uh, César Cui, uh, with the exception of Mili Balakarev, Borodin had a day job that did not entail composition. Borodin was a chemist. As a chemist, he was able to 
invent isn't the right word, but he discovered certain things. One thing is called the Aldol reaction that he co-discovered. I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) But he was a tremendously talented chemist. And so he like almost never slept. He, He would work all day, chemistry all day, then write all night and hang out with his wife and just legendarily got almost no sleep ever. One of my absolute favorite pieces by Borodine is one of his most famous pieces. It's a beautiful piece called In the Steps of Central Asia. And the clarinet solo at the beginning is one of my favorite orchestral clarinet solos of all time. So let's listen to the beginning of In the Steps of Central Asia by Alexander Borodine, the fifth member of the five that we uh, hadn't discussed until now. This is a, you know, a tone poem, something that's evoking a non-musical subject. it really does like you are like following bait and you can't (laughs) you're like I'm a fish and I'm going after it I'm kind of slowly coming up to it just within distance for me to not be like oh I can't catch it such like stringing you along it's great yeah it's like those higher voices hanging out on they're not hanging we've talked about tonic which is the key that a piece is in those upper voices are not on that tonic note, they're on the fifth degree of the scale, which is a very um, unstable place to hang out. And so you're what you're doing is you're reacting to what the harmony is telling you, which is we're not there yet. And so you're hearing that and you're waiting for us to arrive somewhere. And that's the harmony leading you to that, to feel that way. That's just so good. Nice work, Borodine. Nice work, Borodine, while you're doing your chemical reactions and taking care of your sick wife. kind of can't go wrong with the Russians in the 1860s and 70s. I'm just saying, I mean, it was a very special time in music history. anyone from the Gang of Four, <laughs> and you can't go wrong. A couple of them make a little Beaujolais village, and it's like, yes, Jean Fouillard, please make a Beaujolais village so I can actually drink your wine on the kind of semi-daily, but wait, it's not available, but it's only th- shy of $30 <laughs> as opposed to 50 Wow. Um, yeah. You know, but they're like, it doesn't matter what they're making, they all are 
subscribing to the same philosophy or very similar philosophies and just transparent, honest, amazing winemaking. Thank you so much for somehow magically getting us this opportunity to taste these wines side by side. And I mean, if anything, I could just make a plea for patronage so that we can do more <laughs> things like this as well. <laughs> yes, most definitely. So that would be, thank you, Eric Freeberg and New France Wine. Thank you, Kermit Lynch, for bringing in these wines and taking a yes. chance on these guys before they were world-renowned for their wines. You know, he was he took a chance on them in the 80s. Amazing. When they were just starting out. So fascinating stuff. To gangs and groups of peeps. Cheers to that. To scores and forces. Scores and forces. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott, it's me, and radio host Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and much more, and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You'll also find a link there for hoodies and tees if you want to sport some Scores and Pours merchandise. We're on Instagram at Scores and Pours. You can send us a direct message there if you have questions or comments. And also, please do give us a rating where you listen to your podcasts. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by purchasing their musica. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Yeah. June.